Leviticus chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If a person sins and commits a trespass against the Lord by lying to his neighbor about what was delivered to him for safekeeping, or about a pledge, or about a robbery, or if he is extorted from his neighbor, or if he has found what was lost and lies concerning it and swears falsely, in any one of these things that a man may do in which he sins, it shall be, because he has sinned and is guilty, that he shall restore what he has stolen, or the thing which he has extorted, or what was delivered to him for safekeeping, or the lost thing which he found, or all about which he has sworn falsely. He shall restore its full value, add one-fifth more to it, and give it to whomever it belongs on the day of his trespass offering. And he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord, a ram without blemish from the flock, with your valuation as a trespass offering to the priest. So the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any one of these things that he may have done in which he trespasses. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who forgives. And we thank you that you are also a God who explains to us in, in much detail our need for forgiveness. I pray that today that we would understand your character more, understand the ways that we trespass against you, the ways that we are tempted to trespass against you and sin against one another. Please give Dan your words to speak. Put your Holy Spirit on him and give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we come to the last section on the trespass offering, before we start to go into the, the responsibilities of the priests and, and how they are to act, this is again a picture of the most severe punishment of the trespass offering. It requires a lamb rather than, excuse me, a ram rather than a, a female goat or a female sheep. It's a full-grown animal rather than a young animal. So as we, as we think of this, we should again think of this as, as a serious punishment in terms of the trespass offering. And the punishment for these sins are very similar to the punishment for the unintentional sins against the holy things. So God is drawing a parallel between the seriousness of unintentional sins and holy things compared to intentional sins regarding non-holy things. So we need to remember that, that God has already told them how to regulate theft. Back in Exodus 22, in verses 1 through 4, it says, If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If the thief is found breaking in and he is struck that he dies, there shall be no guilt on his bloodshed. If the sun has risen upon him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. He shall make full restitution. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the theft is certainly found alive in his hand, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall restore double. Or specifically related to the passage that's closer to here, which is if somebody gives you their property for, for safekeeping, it talks about that in Exodus 22, 7 through 9. If a man delivers to his neighbor money or articles to keep, and it is stolen out of a man's house, if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, then the master of the house shall be brought to the judges to see whether he has put his hand into his neighbor's goods. 
for any kind of trespass, whether it concerns an ox or a donkey or sheep or clothing, or any kind of lost thing which another claims to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the judges, and whomever the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. So this passage is is clearly different than the passages about those regulations. Here there is a penalty. You have to add a fifth to it. But if you look at the penalty for that's talked about in Exodus 22, it's four or five times or double the amount. So it's not adding 20%. It's adding 400% or 300% or 100%. So the penalty here is clearly less severe. But it's still talking about dealing with physical matters like it was in Exodus 22. So how do you recognize, how do you reconcile these verses? How do you harmonize them? And I think that the answer is simple. In this case, you recognize your guilt. So you want to make a trespass offering. You want to be, to be reconciled to God and man. Versus in the other case, you get caught. And when you get caught, the punishment is, is worse. The judgment by God is worse if you get caught than if you, you recognize your own guilt and you come with a desire for restoration. In the Exodus passages, it's about the thief being found or maybe even not being found and the judge just judging between the two and deciding whether he should pay double or not. As opposed to here, there's no question you recognize your guilt. You say, I am guilty. (coughs) And so this is about somebody who's coming and confessing their sin. And so when we remember that the law was added because of transgression, meaning that it was given to deal with transgression in a society, it was given to constrain sin in the world. The laws about the trespass offering related to lying and stealing but then coming clean and wanting to be cleansed of it, they are about how God constrains sin in the world. So there's an incentive to stop your lying. There's an incentive to confess your lying. There's an incentive to stop stealing rather than being caught. God's law is wise. And the purpose of God's law is to constrain sin. It's not to save anybody. It's to constrain sin. And so this law is about constraining sin. It's, causing, it's so, that, so that theft and, and lying doesn't run rampant through the, through the society. God gives ways that if you feel guilty of it, if you recognize your guilt before God of it, there's a way that you can do it that you don't have to pay back fivefold for something that you may never have been caught doing. And so this is one of the ways God constrains sin in the world. And so the principle that's demonstrated by these commandments, we should be thinking about it, it has a wider application. Confessing a sin should be significant less punishment than getting caught. Think about it, the worst punishment was fivefold. And compare that to a fifth, that's 25 times worse punishment. That's what God says is the difference. If you get caught rather than confessing. We should encourage people to confess their sin. We should encourage people to deal with it. Because when they deal with it, when they confess it, it stops growing. When they don't confess it, it just gets worse and worse. So another thing before we start talking about the details of the verse. 
the trespass offering going through the first part of Leviticus, I said that the, the sin offering is a picture of justification. For the sin offering, you take the animal outside the camp, which Hebrews talks about, that bearing the reproach of Christ, you have to go outside the camp. But I think the trespass offering is more the picture of sanctification, of being cleansed. You know, the ones that we've heard about before, it's, it's not holding your brother accountable for an oath. It's being unclean, made unclean by the things of the world. Or that you swear and you use God's name without having considered your words, whether you're swearing to do good or evil. But you don't actually pay attention to who God is. That is still sin. But that's not sin that a believer can't do. That's a sin that believers can do. And so here I think it's still about sanctification, but here's an example of just like the worst sin that you can do in sinning against God is to, to desecrate His holy things. But believers do that when they don't worship the way they're supposed to worship. When they do it unintentionally, as opposed to if they do it intentionally, it's rebellion. But here I think this is trying to give an example of a serious sin that would be a sin that Christians could do. That those who have, that have received the sin offering. In the last section, God said, here's unintentional sins against the holy thing. And that's like the worst example of someone who knows God and someone who loves God about how they can violate the commandment to love God. When you're intentionally do not worship, excuse me, when you unintentionally, because you don't care enough, to know you unintentionally worship him in a way different than he commands. So I think this is the, the, an extreme example of how a believer can sin. So it's giving like the worst type case. We know in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, it says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexual, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And in there is thieves. And so it seems to me that there's even being a, a, a distinction drawn here about the type of theft, which if you go to back to the passage from Exodus 22, that was true too. There's a big difference between somebody who steals something and it's found in their hand versus that they killed it or they sold it. The person who buys something to fence it, or excuse me, the person who steals something to fence it, they are a thief. That is their nature. That is what they do. That is how they make their living, how they provide for themselves, which is very different than somebody who, who steals it and keeps the animal. Professional thieves don't do that. That's, that's really dumb because you can get caught. But somebody who sees something and covets something that his neighbor has and goes, I really want that, they take it and keep it. And so God creates different punishment for the professional versus the person who fell to temptation. And I think that's the picture of the situation here is this is not somebody who is a thief and their pattern of life is to be a thief. This is a person who sees the situation. They see an animal walking down the road and they go, well, rather than return it, I'll just keep it. That's the picture as opposed to somebody who's plotting to steal 
somebody who's plotting to steal and that they want to make their whole life about theft, nobody trusts them to hold things for safekeeping. After they lose, after they steal it once, the next person goes, this is not a good person to leave it with for safekeeping. And so you don't become a professional by stealing the things that are given to you by safekeeping. The person who makes a pattern of stealing, that these verses don't apply to them. But the person who gets tempted, the person who's in difficult situations, so they do something that they wouldn't otherwise do. I think that's the picture. <laughs> so when you look at the promises of what the Holy Spirit will do, how he will cause us to walk in the commandments of God, we all still know that believers sin. So I think this is a picture of a sin that a believer can do. Not that it's right, but it doesn't mean that they're inherently not a believer. But if their pattern of life is to steal, they're not a believer. So when we look at this picture, we should look at this as a a picture of what the worst violation that a believer can do. Which is why it requires the greatest sacrifice. The sacrifices of a of a ram rather than the sacrifice of a of a lamb. And this is a picture of how they're to deal with their sin when they sin. So verses one through three. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If a person sins and commits a trespass against the Lord by lying to his neighbor about what was delivered to him for safekeeping, or about a pledge, or about a robbery, or if he is extorted from his neighbor, or if he has found what was lost and lies concerning it and swears falsely in any of these things that a man may do in which he sins. So it starts within the Lord spoke. And so this is, I think, the fourth time that that, that phrase is used or some version of that phrase is used in Leviticus. So the text starts and by saying that the Lord spoke, it's separating it separating what comes after from what comes before. So this thing is different than the unintentional sin. It's a new category. Most of the things that were before were you sin unintentionally. And here's somebody who's deliberately sinning. They're deliberately lying to get away with stealing. So the Lord spoke to Moses. And again, he's speaking to Moses regulating what the offering should look like. And so the people and the priests are to hear it from Moses. We're to hear it from the law. We're not supposed to hear it directly from the priests. We shouldn't expect to hear it directly from God. God has spoken through His Word. And so the people would hear from Moses. And then the laws were given. And Moses would instruct the people. So the law is the one that's the picture of the tutor bringing one to Christ. So then he would. So then the Lord said, "If a person sins, so the word for sin here means to miss the mark. When you don't do what Jesus would do in the same circumstance, you're missing the mark. He fulfilled the law. He did everything in the law perfectly. So any time that we don't do what he did, we are violating the law of God. We're missing the mark. And so." This is about the person who sins and commits a trespass. That word commit really means to cover up. And the trespass means to be treacherous, to do something that's treacherous. 
So this is, you lie to cover up your treachery. Right? Somebody loans you something, and you lie about it. You were treacherous to them, and you're treacherous to God. So that's the situation that's being talked about here. (coughs) And so we look at it, and, you know, commits a trespass, misses the mark. We need to recognize it's against the Lord. The theft was specifically treachery against their neighbor. But all sin is against God. It's specifically treachery against the one who gave them something for safekeeping or the one who, who trusted them or was in partnership with them, like it talks about later. But even that, the sin is against the Lord first. Because the reason you take something like that in those circumstances is because you're coveting. So it started with a sin against God. And then it became a sin against man. And then they lied again about it, which again is a sin against God. We shouldn't think that one sin, that when we do something, that that sin is standing alone. That, that sin almost always interacts with other sin and produces other sin. They wanted something and they, either because they didn't want their neighbor to have it or because they wanted the thing. And so because of that, they steal. But we should also recognize how lying is specifically treachery to God. Because when you lie, you are being traitorous to God. And when you steal, you usually have to lie. But lying is a specific sin against God. It's specifically treachery towards God. That's what it says in Isaiah 57, 11. And of whom have you been afraid or feared that you have lied and not remembered me, nor have taken it to your heart? Is it because I have held my peace from of old that you do not fear me? When we lie, we are rejecting God. We are acting as traitors towards God. That's the heart of every lie, is we say God is not sovereign. When we lie, we're rejecting Christ because Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. It is treachery against God to lie. It's important to recognize that. So it's easy to think when you're lying to somebody, well, I'm just hurting them. No, you're actually rejecting God. You're actually rebelling against Christ. Satan is the one who is the father of lies. When you do the works of when you lie, you're doing the works of Satan. And whenever you lie, you're rebelling against Christ because he is the truth. So this is a serious sin. This is a serious sin that the trespass offering is required for. <coughs> so by lying to his neighbor... And then it gives examples about what was delivered to him. So this is about rebelling against God by lying, but the lying is also a sin. Excuse me, the lying is also the sign that this is not a pattern. Because if you're having to lie to the person you stole from, that's not what thieves do. They steal from people that they don't know. If it's the pattern of your life to steal, you start to rob people that you don't know. You don't rob the people that you know. But if it's, a, if it's a sin of opportunity, if it's a sin because it, you happen to be in that place and you don't resist the temptation like you should towards the thing that you covet, 
then all of a sudden you steal it. So this is about lying to your neighbor about what he gave to you for safekeeping. The person that gave it to you, it can't be a pattern because they're not going to give, it to, give something else to you if you stole the first thing you gave to them. And you're going to get a reputation very quickly in your neighborhood of don't trust this guy to hold things for you. And so it's not about a pattern, it's about once. It's about doing it at all. So it was delivered to him for safekeeping. So the first example is you're given something to protect. And the law, again, changes the punishment for that in Exodus 22. It says that if it's found, if they were given it to protect and they steal it, it's only double. It's not, it's not quadruple or quintuple. The person, was given the, the person who gave the item had a real responsibility to understand who they were giving it to. They're to verify that the person has a reputation for honesty. So this is when they violate that reputation, not when they're, if they're a thief. You don't give people thieves. You don't give thieves things to safe keep. Then the next example is about a pledge. And the word here is really about joining together. So a specific type would be when you borrow money and you give somebody something to act as collateral, a pledge. But the, the King James translates it fellowship, which is probably a more confusing but a more accurate translation. So the intention here is that you entered into a deal. I borrow money, you give, I give you my cloak, and then you go and steal that cloak. But it's really any situation where the two enter into a deal. So where you're a partner with somebody and they take money from the, from the, the till, that would be... That would be this case where they have that opportunity where they're trusted and they have the opportunity and they, and they steal. So it's when you have a relationship with them and they steal. So again, the idea is that it's with a known person. It's with somebody who, who you thought you trusted, somebody who you thought you knew, somebody who would lie to get out of it because they'd be dealing with the person and they would know the person who who was stealing from them. <coughs> so in other cases, or about rob- a robbery. And so the word here is to like plunder, where you take advantage of someone weaker. You take what they have with violence. But I don't think this is a normal circumstance, because why would you lie about that? So the word also means to to pluck. So it can be that you just took something from them that was that was theirs where they didn't know it. So you see your neighbor has something and you you decide that you'll just go in the middle of the night and take it from him. You rob him. But this is again about plundering somebody that you know because you then go and lie to them about it. Or if he is extorted to extort means to get with deceit. So maybe you lied about a need. You said, we don't have any food. Can, I, can you give me some money for food when you really have money? It's like what all the people on the road do. A lot of them make, have plenty of money, but they go, oh, I'll work for food, knowing that nobody will drive by and suggest that they work. They just give them money. And so if you do that, this sin would fall into that category, not if you did it on a regular basis, because... At some point, you become a thief. But if you do this to your neighbor, to somebody who you know, 
where you take advantage of them. So you you do it with you extort from them, you use fraud, you use deceit. <coughs> but it has to be from your neighbor. So it's not the person sitting at the corner or standing at the corner by a stoplight begging for food. This is where you know the person, where they're your neighbor, where it's relatively easy for them to catch you because it's, it's someone you know, someone who can confront you, someone who you have to lie to cover it up or that you lied to get it in the first place. Or if he's found what was lost. And so this is, again, another theft of convenience. He sees something that someone else has lost, and he takes it and keeps it and treats it as his own. Instead of going, whose is this, and returning it. Or maybe even knows who it is and intentionally hides it so that they don't, so he doesn't have to return it. But again, it has to be the situation. This is, this is about where you're saying you don't know anything about it. Because you have to lie concerning it. So this isn't the fact of like going around and trying to rustle cattle for people. And you go, oh, look, there's just cattle out here. I'm going to take it. This is where you stumble across an animal. And you go, I'll just mix this in with my flock. Who will notice? And then when you're confronted about it, you lie. And you say, oh, no, I don't have it. But clearly the person who confronted you is suspicious, or why would he? Why would you lie about it? So again, this is this is a specific class of theft. This is theft where you're stealing from people that you know. Theft where you're stealing in the situation where they can catch you pretty easily. And so maybe the person catches you, and it sounds like you know that you're forced to take an oath, like where you went before the judge in Exodus 22, and so you swear falsely. You bring God's name into it. The previous ones were just about lying. They weren't saying, I swear in the name of God. But now this one, you're saying, I swear in the name of God. Because somebody confronts you and say, you took what was mine. You go, no, I didn't. So this is a list of examples. So it says, if in any of these things, God's giving a list to say, think about these things in a certain way. There's no way it's intended to be inclusive. Again, this is case law. This is, this is saying this is what this trespass offering is for. And it, and it makes sense to me that just like with the holy things, it starts with money, is that the principle of restitution in most cases is very hard to understand what restitution is. You, you lie to your wife about something. How do you... How do you resolve that? How do you, how do you undo that? That's, that can't be codified in the law. But if you stole from something, it's easy to codify it in the law. But we should be thinking about it when we see the need for restitution, when we see the need to add a fifth to it, we're supposed to go back and look and say, okay, so if I just lied to my neighbor, what restitution do I need to make? How do I need to restore it to my neighbor? Because we should be thinking about this. God's giving examples so that we can understand the various aspects of it. The need to, to make it good with your neighbor. And to do more than just make them back where they were before. 
And so God uses the example of theft because in it you can see the principles clearer than you can see it with some other things. But the principle is you always have to make restitution. You always have to resolve what you did to the person. You can't just go, well, you know, I'm going to pray to God, confess my sin, and he'll be just to forgive me my sin when you haven't been just to undo the damage that you did. So in any one of these things that a man may do in which he sins, any of these things, when somebody trespasses, when they do what they're not supposed to do, God made a way for them to be cleansed of that sin. Obviously, this is a picture of Christ as the trespass offering. But they're also, you need to do more than that. You need to do more than just say, oh, I trust in Christ. Leviticus 6, 4 and 5. Then it shall be because he has sinned and is guilty that he shall restore what he has stolen or the thing which he has extorted or what was delivered to him for safekeeping or the lost thing which he found or all that about which he has sworn falsely. He shall restore its full value, add one-fifth more to it and give it to whomever it belongs on the day of his trespass offering. So then it shall be again. I don't think this passage is about men getting caught. You could argue that they're caught by God. When you're convicted of sin, when you say, I need to deal with this thing that I did, you have been caught. God has, God through the Holy Spirit has convicted you of the theft. But it, this is talking about when you recognize what you've done, when you, reckon, when you feel the guilt of it. Because he sinned, because he missed the mark, because he did what he wasn't supposed to do and is guilty. When he sees that he's, that word means that he's due punishment, that he deserves to be punished. So when you, then it shall be when you recognize your sin, when you recognize that you're, that you are worthy of being punished, then you need to respond. And you have to first respond by restoring the damage that you did. So then he shall restore. He has an obligation to restore. Don't think that you can publicly come and confess your sin and and just have everything be forgotten that you did, all the damage that you did to be forgotten. God goes, there isn't public forgiveness of sin until... Until you've, you've fixed what you did. Too often we just want to think, oh, I'll go sin this way. And then you just, oh, well, I'll just confess it and God will forgive my sin. Instead of actually dealing with the sin. Or, or you know, the Roman Catholic way where you just say all these prayers and stuff. And you don't actually deal with the sin against the person. Or the U.S. government way. Which is you just arrest the person and you put, throw them in jail. And you don't worry about making restitution for the person that was damaged, none of that is just. None of that is righteous. God's way is the righteous way. If you've damaged somebody, you have a responsibility to undo the damage. When we sin against men, which does mean we sin against God, but before we can be restored with our sinning against God, before we can have an expectation that we can just say, I'm fine with God, we first have to fix the problem with men. 
if we love God, we love our neighbor. Who can say that they love God when they don't love the brother who they see? How can they say they love the God who they don't see? So how can you say that I feel guilt for my sin? How can you say that I want to turn from this sin if you don't want to undo the damage done by the sin? Don't believe that you have forgiveness from God if you don't want to deal with the consequences of your sin. When we sin against God, we have a duty from God to to undo the sin against our neighbor. Because loving God and loving your neighbor intrinsically linked together, you can't separate them. And you can't think, oh, I've been made right with God. I've resolved the issue with God when you haven't resolved the issue with your neighbor. And that idea of, of you know, the words that are translated restore, it means to turn back the physical things. So it's to make it like it was before. To make the person not suffer loss because of your sin. You take their ox, they get their ox back. Plus they get damages for, for however long you had the ox because you stole the labor of the ox as well. <coughs> it's required to restore the person, to make them whole for the damage that you did. So you have to restore what he has stolen. And again, it then goes through in this passage and it does the parallel of the previous verses and it starts with what you've robbed. If you've robbed your neighbor, if you stole something, then you have to, if you took what was his and then you lied about it, you have to give it back. You don't think, you can't deal with the sin of lying until you steal with the the sin of stealing it. And you have a duty to make it to them as if it never happened so that they have no loss in the matter. Or the thing which he has extorted. So if you lie to get your neighbor's goods through trickery and deceit, you have a duty to give them back and to make it, and to also give them back by, by explaining how you, how you lied to get it in the first place. You don't just give it back to them and say, oh, I, borrowed my, or I took this money and now I have money, so I'll give it back to you. You have a duty to actually make them understand the situation. If you extorted them, you have a duty to, to undo your deceit. Or was what was delivered to him for safekeeping. So if you put your hand in your neighbor's goods that he gave you to protect. And then lied about it to cover it up for it. You have to make it so that he has all his goods back. And again, that would require you telling and admitting that you took the stuff in the first place. This is about actually feeling guilt for the sin, actually recognizing that you stand guilty for what you did. And when we stand guilty, we have to confess it. We have to admit it. We have to confess our sins to one another. If we've, if we've stolen something, then you have to say, I'm sorry, I stole this. Let me make it up to you. And that's what was required by the law. Or the lost thing that he, he was, that, or the lost thing which he found. So in that case, you have to give back the thing that, that you were taken. And the law makes a specific point about this in Exodus 23.4. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. So even if it's your enemy, you have to make him whole. It doesn't matter who it is. Your responsibility before you can expect to be reconciled to God, you have to recognize you have to fix the problem with your neighbor, even if he's your enemy.
all about that which he has sworn falsely. So if there was anything that they took an oath, anything that they brought God's name into the matter, they have to deal with it. They have to, they have to make the truth known. When they used an oath to steal from their neighbor, they have a duty to restore it. And he shall restore its full value. Again, the duty is to make sure that the owner wasn't hurt by your theft. There are some things that you can just return the item, you know, such as a gold coin. If they didn't have the need for the gold coin and, and they gave it to you for safekeeping and you took the gold coin, then all you have to do is return the gold coin. But if maybe they're, you know, they needed the coin to pay a debt so they lost their collateral, then full re- you know, restoring the full value would be to get the collateral back. It wouldn't just be to pay back the gold coin. Or if it was an animal, the full value is not just, I'm going to return the, the ox that I used for the spring planting. It's also to pay for the money that the other person had to do to, to rent an ox so that he could get his spring planting done. And so the point is not just to say, well, I've given the thing back. That's good enough. No, the answer is, or the point is, you have to give back what was taken. And a lot of times what was taken was more than just the item. <coughs> so the point is to restore the owner back to, to everything that he lost and not just give him back this thing that you used for a while. <coughs> the duty is to make it so that the owner had no loss by your theft. And then, with that full value, you also have to add one-fifth more to it. So God demands an extra 20%, or commands an extra 20% be given. And we have to recognize that God, in His perfect wisdom, is giving the law to constrain evil. And so to give the law to constrain evil, you, you have to balance certain things. If it was just payback full then why wouldn't people just steal things if they really needed them and then they could just pay it back later and there's no cost to using it. There's no cost to doing that. So God on the one hand says we're not going to have there be no cost because if there's no cost, there's no disincentive to steal. And on the other hand, there has to be incentive to confess because most crimes aren't going to be caught. That's the way it works. Most things that people steal, nobody ever finds who stole them. So if the law was, it's the same, it's the same fivefold if you stole an ox and you know, sold it, and then somebody steals their neighbor's ox and they steal, they lie about it, and then they sell the ox, and you didn't said the penalty's the same in both cases, then why would anybody come up and confess their sin? Now God could make them, God could convict them of their sin in such a way that they couldn't resist. I don't mean to imply that. But God is even balancing it for, for unrighteous people. And he's balancing it to give real incentive by having the penalty be one twenty-fifth of the other penalty of saying just add a fifth to it. So there's still a penalty so people don't want to just go all steal and then when I need to I'll return it because there's a cost. But on the other hand, they have a real incentive a real incentive to turn themselves in, a real incentive to go confess their sin, to restore it. So God in His wisdom, the way He designs the law is not with... He doesn't do it naively. He does it recognizing the nature of man, recognizing the temptation to sin. So He gives the law because of transgression, because of the nature of man, because man will sin. 
So he gives a law to constrain sin. (coughs) So it has to be somewhat punitive, but it can't be too punitive. So God in his wisdom said, add a fifth. And give it to whomever it belongs. It's about restoration. It's about making the person who suffered the loss whole plus 20%. That's the fair restitution. Because what they lost was more than just what was stolen. They were lied to. They were deceived. These other things. And they would have to deal with other issues. And so God is saying, this is what you owe. And it gives it to whoever it belongs. This isn't about somehow the... The, the state being restored. This isn't about fines that the state is making pay. The person who was stolen from, they're the ones who, who should be made whole. Now it says on the day of his trespass offering. So the important point to understand here is there can't be restoration between God and man if the effort hasn't been made to restore the relationship between men. Don't think that you can have forgiveness of sin And it doesn't mean that God doesn't know your heart and if you're truly trying. But the church shouldn't go, oh, yeah, you're fine with God where you haven't made restitution. Because the public restitution is required for the public forgiveness of sin. (coughs) So this is a picture of the relationship between the first commandment, loving God, and the second commandment, loving your neighbor. You can't be restored to God until you've been restored to the man that you stole from. There's another possible way to translate this, which is, or to to deal with this. The word translated trespass offering is actually different than the word trespass offering a couple verses, or maybe the next verse. Yeah, it's different than the one in verse 6. This trespass offering, that means the thing related to guilt. And this actually means guilt. So a possible correct interpretation of this is the day that you feel the guilt, the day you recognize your guilt and accept your guilt in the matter, that's the day you're supposed to make restitution. Not necessarily the day that you make the offering. And because they are two different words between verse 5 and verse 6. They're not the same word. They're very related words, but they're not the same word. And so this might mean that as soon as you figure out that you were guilty... You don't wait. You go and make restitution, which actually seems like the more, the, more righteous, the more righteous thing. You don't wait until you can get a ram in order to make the offering. You fix the problem with the person first. <coughs> but it still leaves a sin against God that needs to be dealt with. Because when you lie, you have forgotten God and you have acted as a traitor towards God. Leviticus 6, 6 and 7. And he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord, a ram without blemish from the flock, with your valuation as a trespass offering to the priest. So the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord. And he shall be forgiven for any one of these things that he may have done in which he trespasses. So he shall bring, because there still needs to, once you've made restitution to the person who you stole from, to the owner, or you have to bring that, potentially you have to bring that restitution to the, to the trespass offering. 
but you have to you have to deal with the the debt that you owe to God. You still need to be restored to God. Being restored to your brother is not sufficient. You have to be restored to God as well through an offering. So you bring his trespass offering. This is a required offering. When you recognize your guilt, when you see how you have transgressed against the Lord, you have to make an offering to the Lord. And again, it's a ram. Which of the trespass offerings, it's the most serious, you know, in terms of the the value, the most serious offering. A full-grown ram is is more valuable than a a young female, a full-grown male. And so this would have had more value. And so God is saying to deal with this sin, to deal with this kind of sin, you have to do the greatest of the trespass offerings. And all those, though it's important to recognize, all those are less than the value of the trespass or the sin offering that was required for a priest. They needed a bullock. They needed to to offer a bullock in order for them, the anointed priest, for them to be restored to God. This, this again, I don't think this is about justification. I think this is about sanctification. And that that first one is about being carried outside the camp, joining with Christ outside the camp. This is about being cleansed. This is about about being restored to fellowship with God. So you have to bring a a ram without blemish from the flock. You're not allowed to offer anything to God that is blemished. One aspect of that is clearly it's a picture of Christ. He had no blemish. He was completely without blemish. But the other aspect is you're not really honoring God if you offer an offering that's blemished. You can't say, oh, I'm honoring you, God, when you, give them your, when you give him your poor, when you give him your maimed. That's not honoring God. And so this is about you act as a traitor towards God and you're trying to restore yourself to God. When we do that, we need to come before God with humility. We need to come before God with our best, not with, with whatever we happen to have in our hand, whatever we want to get rid of. That's not how you get reconciled to God. You do not get re- when you lie, you dishonor God. When you try to be restored, you have to honor God. If they brought the bl- blind, if they brought the lame, they're dishonoring God. You know, in Malachi it says, "Would the king accept that offering if you offered that offering?" It would have been considered dishonoring. And so, when we expect to be restored to God, it's not like. There's ways we can do it with honor, and there's ways we can do it with dishonor. If you do it with pride, you're doing it with dishonor, and you shouldn't expect God to say, I've forgiven you that sin. If you're a Christian, you should expect the scourging rod of God. So without blemish from the flock, with your valuation. (coughs) The most obvious case is that you have to arrange all these things to happen at once. But if verse 5 really just means when you feel guilt that you have to, when you recognize your guilt, you have to deal with it. Then I think here it would not just necessarily bring, mean you bring the valuation, but that you prove that, that you've resolved the issue, that you've restored what was lost to the person that you stole from. But the valuation, resolving it with your brother is required if you expect to resolve it with God. You have to prove that you've resolved it with your brother, that you have the things necessary to resolve it with your brother. 
And I would think that if you bring the actual valuation there, that your brother, that the person who you sinned against, the person who you stole from, would have to be there to receive it. So the priest knew that they received it before they would do the trespass offering. Because you're not going to be reconciled with God if you haven't been reconciled with man. (coughs) Now, obviously, this would cause problems if it's the actual payment required. If the other person lived far from Jerusalem, it could be very difficult. Israel, all of Israel, you're talking 30 or 40 miles by foot. That's, that's a, big, a big issue. So my thought is that it's probably this idea that you have to prove that, that you've dealt with the restoration. You prove that you've, you've added the fifth so that, so that the priest can actually make reconciliation with God because you can't be reconciled with God if you're not dealing with the reconciliation with man. So you bring your, these are both the trespass offering. So you bring the ram and you bring the valuation, and both of those are the trespass offering. The one goes to the man who you sinned against, the other goes to the priest to, to sacrifice for God or towards God. But all of them, both of them are part of the trespass offering. Both of them are required to resolve the trespass. You can't think the trespass is resolved if you haven't dealt with the person who you sinned against. So you give it to the priest. Again, the reconciliation needs to be done through a priest. This is the the picture of Christ being the one that makes the offering acceptable. You know, as priests, according to the Bible, we can go directly to God. But we still need to make restitution. We still need to... To, to resolve the issue with men if we accept, expect God to accept our offering. If we expect to be able to go to God. So the priest shall make atonement for him. Christ makes intercession so that we can be restored to the Father. He knows our frame. He knows we're just dust. He recognizes the temptations that we have because he was tempted in every way that we are, but without sin. So he recognizes these things and he can understand these things so that when we come to him as the high priest, he can, he can reconcile us, he can make atonement for us through his own blood. These priests, the Levitical priests, they would have to shed the blood of the ram so that the atonement could be made. He doesn't need to shed the blood of the lamb or the ram because he was, he was the trespass offering and his blood is sufficient. So the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord. So now Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. Leviticus priests would do it at the altar of burnt offering that was before God. What they had to do at the altar of burnt offering, Christ does now in the presence of God so that we can be reconciled to him, so that we can have atonement made for us. But it really requires us turning from our sin, recognizing our guilt, confessing our guilt, making restitution. And again, the restitution is in some work that makes us right with God. But we shouldn't publicly be treating people as being restored to God if they haven't been restored. If they haven't demonstrated love for their brother, we shouldn't just assume they have love for God. And it says, and he shall be forgiven. God truly forgives. He forgives sin. But notice this passage. So many people, when they go, God forgives, they don't say God, they don't mean God forgives sin. They mean God ignores sin. 
God doesn't ignore sin. He requires restoration. He requires making the person who was sinned against whole. He's not just ignoring sin. He's not just overlooking sin. He's actually forgiving it. And forgiving it means that you don't damage somebody else. God is not unjust. He requires restitution. He shall be forgiven for any one of these things. Forgiveness exists because God is both just and merciful. So in anything that you sin, not a sin leading to death, but but all these things that a Christian can sin in, understand you can go to God and be forgiven. But don't think that that means there won't be consequences. Don't think that doesn't mean that you don't need to fix the problems that you caused. There is forgiveness, but there's also responsibility. God is just and God is merciful. <clears throat> so he can be forgiven for anything that he may have done. So I think he's expanding it here. This was a case law. This was an example about theft. But there's lots of other things that you may have done, been done. Other trespasses that you may have made. And God's forgiveness is there for all of them. But this is an example so that we can think of the things that are required when sin is forgiven by God. It's not just ignoring the sin, it's dealing with the sin. It's not just saying, oh, you're forgiven, go sin again, which is what happens so often in churches. It's about your sin's forgiven because you've dealt with your sin. You've actually dealt with repentance. You've actually dealt with the things talked about in 2 Corinthians 7. So this is the easy example because it's about theft. But there's lots of other ways to hurt people. Somebody hurts somebody else's reputation, for instance, by lying about them. It's much harder to understand how to make restitution. But there's still a duty to make restitution. God just uses the example that's nice and easy and measurable so that the principles are laid down so that we understand that these apply in other areas as well to any way that you can trespass. You still have to make restitution. You still have to make it in full. You still have to, it's right to, to overpay them for what you did. So, but God gives us the easy example so that we can understand that it applies to all cases. <coughs> Let me give you some applications. The first, the penalty needs to be much worse if you're caught, rather than if you confess on your own volition. In America, there is a way to enormously reduce the penalty of sin. In one case that I know about, if they would not confess, they they received 18 years in prison. If they did confess, they'd get a six-month suspended sentence. That's a huge difference, like an unbelievable difference. But that wasn't like the passage here, where if you're guilt and you come forward, that you get a lower penalty. That was after you were caught. That is a completely unjust system. And that's what we have in America that people are used to manipulate every day in this country. The plea bargain system is to manipulate people into lying. Because they say you can have a suspended sentence or you can go to prison for 18 years. Which do you want to do? Do you want to lie or do you want to tell the truth? 
the church needs to be speaking that the right way to do it is somebody who comes forward and confesses, there should be a much smaller penalty than somebody who has to be caught because that actually constrains sin. Our system does not constrain sin because it's not God's justice. God's ways are so much better than our ways. The biblical standard is if you confess before you get caught, the penalty is a lot less. If you get caught, it doesn't matter what you say. But that's not our system, and our system is doing great damage to, to our country because we don't have justice. <coughs> the law is just. God's law is just because it incentivizes towards confession. Our system doesn't do that at all. Our system incentivizes towards lying. And the church needs to be declaring to the world, this is not how it should be. Another application is, remember, lying is treachery towards God. It's easy to think that, you know, a little, you know, a little white lie, what's the big deal? But all lies. All lies. Wherever you think I'm going to say something that's untrue because it will make it easier. Whenever you do that. Even if it's your wife says, do you like this dress? And you say, oh, yeah, I like the dress, even though you don't like it. Even that little lie where you did it just to kind of smooth things over in your household. God says that is treachery. You acted as a traitor towards me. You acted like I don't exist. You act like I'm not in control of all things. That's how serious lying is. Lying is about treachery towards God. (coughs) Whenever we... Even if it's some quote-unquote innocent lie, it is rebellion against God. It's rejecting that God is in control. It's rejecting that he's ruling in the world. And it's easy to be tempted by sin. It's easy to think, oh, I'll just say this lie and I'll get out of these short-term consequences. But that's not how it works. Because you've rebelled against the Creator. And you may not see it, but God sees it. So we all see it in our children, how they make things so much worse when they lie. Make sure that you remember that. And when you're tempted to think, oh, this will go better if I just do blah. If I just say this, which isn't true, don't believe it for a second. That's a lie from Satan. When you act as a traitor towards God, things always go worse. When you do the works of Satan, things always go worse. God's ways are pleasant ways, and his paths are peace, and his paths are truth. (coughs) And related to that, another application, recognize that God judges lying. Isaiah 63.8 says, For he said, Surely they are my people, children who will not lie. So he became their savior. This doesn't mean that children never lie, or Christians never lie. But every Christian should understand, if God is their father, just like you would scourge your children, you'd use the rod hard on your children if they lie. Don't think for a second God's not a better father than you. God judges lying. That's why he can say, my children, never, my children who will not lie. It's not because we, lie, we don't lie because we're somehow so great. We don't lie because... We have God as a father and he punishes you until you learn not to lie. That's what God does. 
He scourges every son he receives. <coughs> so this is, I think, is a picture of sanctification, and the person's lying in it. He's even swearing falsely. But understand, that doesn't mean you'll get away with it ever. If you are a Christian, God hates lying. It's an abomination before him, and he will judge it. So very related to that, you need to teach your children that lying is a terrible sin. We're in a society that's filled with lying, filled with the belief that lies are just ways to make social interaction easier. The church needs to speak and say all lying is rebellion to God. All lying is about being judged by God, being punished by God. And those lies always make things harder, not easier. And the way the church speaks that and teaches that is it starts with what what the parents in the church do with their children. Are you making sure your children see the significance of lying? See the significance of the judgment that comes from lying. (coughs) Excuse me. Another application. Recognize one sin leads to another. It's hard to be a thief and not lie, especially if you know the person. Yeah, there's a fanciful story that was completely made up by Washington Irving about the George Washington as a child that he cut down a cherry tree and somebody asked him if he cut down the cherry tree and he said, oh, I can't lie. I cut down the cherry tree. And this became a, I mean, this myth came accepted and everybody relates it and talks about it because everybody understands that's not how sin works. Everybody understands that if, if he actually, after he cut down the cherry tree, admitted to it, that's, that's not how people behave. So he had to be an exceptional person to do this. Because everybody recognizes that when you sin, it starts a path of other sins. And so this myth becomes this, this story out there because people hear it and they go, wow, he had to be exceptional. Because it's so contrary to everybody's experience, but yet we lie to ourselves. We think that we can have one little sin and it will just stay that one little sin. Not that a sin leads to another sin, which leads to another sin. That's how sin works. Sins go together. You steal and then you end up lying. When you're tempted to sin, don't think about just that sin that you're tempted to. Think of all the sins that that sin is going to produce because it's going to produce more than one. You're planting a seed that will produce a tree. That's how sin works. And if you've been tempted, and if you fell to that temptation you sin, the best time to cut down the tree is now. Don't let it continue to produce more buds. Don't let it continue to produce more branches. That's what sin does. Sin produces other sins. When you're sinning, the first thing to do is stop sowing because you'll just get more sins. But you think that that sin will be covered by another sin, which will be covered by another sin, and it's not how the world works. And so this picture here where you sin against man and then you sin against God by lying about it, this is how sin works in the world. So deal with sin. Don't put it off because all it will produce is more sin. So another application. The best time to deal with sin is now. If you want forgiveness from God, start making restitution. Start dealing with the effects of your sin. Restitution is about how you harmed your your neighbor. You know, when it's material, it's easy to understand how to restore it with a penalty. 
but regardless of what it is, when you sin and you hurt somebody, when you when you damage somebody, you have a responsibility to pay them back with with or to do more than restore. And you have a duty to make it known. When they would bring in the sin, when they would bring in the trespass offering, everybody would know they were bringing in a ram. They would know that this was a serious trespass. And they would have to confess it. They would have to say, "Here's what I did." Because it's not about hiding your sin, it's about exposing it so it's it's destroyed because light destroys darkness. And so if you're if you're dealing with sin right now, the best thing to do is is or if you're if you're struggling in sin right now, the best thing to do is to deal with it. Start making restitution. Go to God. Confess your sin. Make it known so that other people can come beside you and stop. Because it will continue. It will continue to produce more buds, to continue to produce more and more sins. That's the nature of sin. And you have to deal with the consequences of it. If you expect to receive forgiveness from God, it's not just about praying, oh, God, forgive me. It's about actually dealing with the consequences of that sin, what you did, how you damaged people before you should expect to have forgiveness with God. Next application, there should be punishment for, rest, you know, for restitution. It's not just about returning to, it, to what it was before. It's that they had to add a fifth to it. There has to be a say... A, there has to be, in, in restitution, there has to be an idea that you give back more so that there's real constraint on people from doing the sin again. And, you know, with, with material things, it's easy to understand what the, right, what the right level of punishment is. With other things, it can be harder. But God has ordered the world, and he has made his law, and he has made what righteousness is so that so that sin is constrained, and for sin to be constrained, don't think you just go back and pay back what you did, or you undo what you did. You lie to somebody, and then you go back to them, and you say, oh, I'm sorry, I lied to you, and not ex- and expect that you're back where you were. You're not back where you were. It requires more to make restitution than that. And God put it in that world that there's an aspect of punitiveness to it so that sin is constrained in the world because his ways are ways of wisdom. You know, now when someone sins through theft, the focus is not on restoring what the person lost, but it's the focus is on the offense towards the government. That's why they're thrown in prison. You know, they might pay back a few pennies on a dollar in terms of restitution, but the, the main thing is you dared to offend the government. That's not God's ways. God's way is the person is to be made whole. And not that there's some arbitrary punishment to pay back the state because you stole from somebody else. We should get back to the idea is the person should have to pay restitution. They should have to, to deal with the person that was harmed, not deal with the government. Another application in all our sins, we should recognize that reconciliation with God is not separate from reconciliation with man. You know, this is a picture of Matthew five twenty three and 24. This passage is, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. That's the pattern here. You can't offer your ram for a for a trespass offering until you have the valuation to deal with the restitution to your brother. 
That's the same thing Jesus Christ is broadening and he's expanding it, not to make it just monetary, but he's saying you need to deal with reconciliation with your brother because don't think you can be reconciled with God. Don't think you can be worshiping God. Don't think that you can be loving God when you don't demonstrate that by loving your neighbor. You can't honor God if you don't honor your neighbor. And the last one is resolving issues with men is not sufficient. Yes, it's necessary to stop being a curse to others. But every sin separates you from God. Every sin requires a blood sacrifice. Every sin requires blood to have been spilt so that you could be forgiven that sin. So after you're saved, don't just go, oh, I had Jesus Christ as my Savior. We need him as our Savior. Because his blood that was shed was not just for a burnt offering, was not just for a peace offering, was not just for a sin offering, it was also for a trespass offering. Because every time we sin, we separate ourselves from God. And so we need the sacrifice of Christ so that we can be forgiven. And we don't need to go killing rams anymore. Now it's very simple. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The desire, a desire is still required for the forgiveness of sin, but because of the sacrifice of Christ, we can just now go and confess our sin and trust that through the Holy Spirit that he will cleanse us of our sin and cleanse us from our unrighteousness and so that we can be reconciled with God and man. Let me close in prayer. Oh, Lord God, we do thank you for this passage. We thank you for all these offerings that we've been going through. We pray that you let us see how to apply them to our own lives. Let us see how to, to deal with sins where we have offended other people and that we have a duty to resolve that offense. Lord, we pray that you help us to be a people that have a good reputation outside because it's important that we be a people that are walking in justice and are walking in truth so that people can see the nature of God. And even these simple things like dealing with sin, this is about good works that cause cause others to see our Father in heaven and to praise him. Lord, help us to be a more just and a more righteous people that walk in a way that's distinctly different from the world so so that the world can see that you are a good God. We ask this in your name. Amen.